Hey everybody, Scott Burnside back again for a weekly catch-up with Pierre Lebrun, two-man advantage, the podcast, and Pierre, how are things in Toronto? How are you feeling today, my friend? Well, we had a monsoon of a thunderstorm uh, last night, but uh, the house uh, the house is still intact, so here we go, another day. Yeah, and you know what, Pierre, you and I have, you know, since the uh, the pause in the middle of March, every week when we gather for two-man advantage, it does seem that the world is in a much different place, and this week, mm. following the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, we are in... Uh, a completely different place from a week ago, and I'm really I'm so excited that uh, Kevin Weeks is going to join us to today to help unpack some of this. And Kevin, I know you're in Florida. I know you're fighting off rain, and Kevin and Pierre and I are responsible for ketchup chips and maybe other <laughs> care package for you. But how are you doing? And 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 thanks for thanks for joining us today. Yeah. Good afternoon. Good morning, guys. Hope you guys are doing well and your families are healthy and safe. Everything is good. With us, uh, we've been in Jersey and New York City for the majority of the time at home. And then uh, we came down to our place in Miami for a little bit. So everybody's healthy. Most importantly, families are healthy, you know, back in Canada, here in the States and uh, Western Canada, as well as, as I told you guys offline up in Calgary and GTA for my family and family in Barbados and stuff. So most importantly, everybody's healthy. But as you just kind of alluded to, what a, what a, what a crazy time, what a wild time it is right now and it's just so much going on so I, I can totally see how you guys said it's a completely different world than it was uh since you guys last got together in your last podcast yeah well kevin maybe can we can we just start with that do you can you tell us where you were when you first became a, a aware of the the murder of george george floyd what it was like for you to first process and and see that and and, and what that was what went through your mind when when you first became aware we were down here in uh, in Miami, and I mean, it's just it's so appalling to see. It's it was so appalling to watch, and just the lack of humanity, the lack of empathy, just person to person, really. And uh, I really feel like all the officers, not only the lead officer who conducted the murder himself, but I felt like all the officers were complicit because at some point they could have told the guy, "Stop, okay, let him up," or "Okay, that's enough," or try to grab that officer, put him in a chokehold. I mean, not to trivialize anything, but, you know, especially for a lot of us males, we've all grown up around wrestling. Try something, put him in a sleeper hold, do something, a headlock, something. And none of them did anything, which is why I feel like they're all complicit, even though they weren't directly the ones that, uh, that were performing the act, that it was that one officer. So it was just so appalling to watch. And he was treated like an animal at that point in time. Which is never good either. But I mean, you know, if you can imagine the way that a human being is treated in broad daylight, it was just, it, it was appalling, shocking, super scary, and disheartening more than anything on a human level. Yeah, it's well said, Kevin. Um, Thank you. And, and, you know, what has transpired since just feels to me different than what we've seen in a long time and 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 let's just be blunt kevin this isn't the first this first disgusting act that we've seen in terms of oppression and, right. and frankly you know the outrageous um unacceptable acts against the black community but 
this just feels what has transpired since is is uh, in terms of the revolt and the reaction mm-hmm. um it just feels at another level i mean i i certainly i hope that we're not going to talk in two months that this was a footnote and everything's gone back to normal this feels right. like it's starting something different i, I don't know how, how you feel about it no that's well put i think that characterizes it pretty well there um you know you where that's concerned it's so powerful and i feel like now all the different factors it's just all these different elixirs at once in this big pot really and you know one of them being covid and how that's impacted so many people and shutting down different parts of the world certainly for us here in the states and back in canada and you know some other countries that have taken similar actions lockdown back in the uk etc and being locked down so you know for people there in a sense there's more opportunity for people to be more empathetic maybe and maybe more open-minded or have the capacity to hear and intake more i guess because they might not be as inundated with commuting you know from laval to downtown montreal for work or you know from pickering like my sister and her husband to downtown toronto for work or whatever the case may be here in new york for us for uh you know for meg to go from her house in jersey which literally is 10 minutes into the city in the morning by drive could be an hour an hour 10 minutes so People in saying that I feel have a little bit more space to take in information because they don't have that. And then kids are at home. So I I really feel like that factor alone with the COVID has allowed people's eyes to be open a little bit wider, their ears to be open a little bit wider and their hearts, which we're seeing in a lot of cases, uh, to become even greater in their capacity to be empathetic and to be compassionate. And, And that's, I mean, that's been really important. And then also just from a sheer outrage and an enough is enough standpoint, you know, for those of us in the black community and, and for others, it's not only limited to us, but you know, right now it's us that are afflicted, but it still impacts everybody directly and indirectly in different ways. Cause you know, you might see somebody on the surface and you might not know that, you know, their best friend might be black or, you know, their niece or nephew might be black or biracial or, you know, maybe they have family that's, lived in the Caribbean for years or whatever the case may be, their grandparents marched, they've been advocates, they're teachers or educators. There's so many different layers in life and where we're all interconnected. So in saying that, I feel the timing and the weight and the gravity and just how inhumane his murder was and the others, even the gentleman that owns the barbecue spot in Louisville, who was 53 years old, who was feeding law enforcement officers for free, a chef, restaurateur, he was murdered two days ago in Louisville. So I think in saying that there's a groundswell now, to me anyways, I feel that's going to be more impactful than not to discredit any of the other movements, but I think this has the potential just by way of the width of it and the breadth of it, and also by way of social media too, which in which cases in a lot of instances we're seeing the best of social media because so many people now, even if they weren't before or if they were before, are now uh, jumping on board collectively to advocate and realize that it's a human rights issue. And, you know, we certainly appreciate that. I know I do. Yeah. Kevin, it's, I, I was I was thinking about this and and thinking about working on a feature on Willie O'Ree when he went into the Hall of Fame two years ago. And I, I, I remember Wayne Simmons comment 
uh, it was around the time that uh, there was a, a real push for Willie O'Ree to go in the Hall of Fame. And, and Wayne's comment, and I'll paraphrase it, was that if, 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 you, if you are a black hockey player, then you are someone who's encountered racism somewhere along the line within within the game of hockey and i wonder this is this is something that's happened to you your experiences are are the same and i wonder if what has happened you know starting with the well even before george floyd but if this has brought back those kinds of memories for you mm. and whether you think it's important for people you know, to be to to share them, to be able to share what has happened. We had some writers at the Athletic this past week who mm. shared their experiences as as black writers in, I think they were all in in the United States. But that was a powerful piece of writing to share those experiences. And I wonder if it's brought back memories for you, and and how important it is to be able to share them at this point. Sure. Yeah. No. I, okay. Let me start here because I think this will give our listeners and. You know, some of the hockey fans around the world that are tuning in a little bit of context. So I'll start by saying both my parents are from Barbados in the Caribbean. And my aunt and uncle left Barbados, went to London, UK. And then uh, after living in London, uh, nine years, I think, then they wanted to move to Canada. So they moved to Windsor and then Toronto. My mom moved to Canada at 16 and joined them. She went back home to Barbados at 19, but she came to Canada at 16 first. Worked right away. Um, did night school courses right away and then went back to Barbados to get my dad. They got married and then she was bringing him. He didn't want to leave Barbados just for the record. <laughs> he didn't want to leave. And and by the way, he was working on a plantation on his own Island and he didn't want to leave for a better opportunities in Canada. So he was working on Applewaite's plantation. He was the overseer on the plantation and he, you know, he was, he was very defiant and wanting to leave. And my mom's like, no, you're coming. We're going, I got an apartment set up on Christie street. You're coming. This is how we're going to do it. And we're going to try and start a life anew in Canada. So I'll always be grateful to home to Canada for that reason. And, you know, I'm born Canadian, but ancestrally and culturally, I'm a Bajan, as we say, from Barbados, but I'm born Canadian. So I'll always appreciate those two countries. And I'll always appreciate the United States because I played here the majority of my playing career. I've lived here now the last five years. So it's almost been 20 years that I've lived in the States. So very grateful to all three of those countries. To kind of take it back um, from a hockey standpoint, you know, hockey was a thing that united us and, and made us feel in different ways more included in Canada. So I grew up watching Hockey Night in Canada. My uncle did, you know, my dad did, different family members. And we started playing street hockey behind the building uh, at uh, 580 Christie Street. This is where we lived originally. And we had kids from every different background. But if you know anything about Christie and St. Clair, you know, St. Clair West especially is predominantly Italian, although it's still very diverse. So if you can imagine, um, you know, Paolo, Luigi, all these different guys that we had and friends of mine whose parents were from Italy that emigrated who were soccer people. And then my dad, you know, was a cricket person. And, you know, Lambros, who was our main goalie, who's from Greece, et cetera. These different people and, you know, Brits, French Canadian, white Canadian, Irish Canadian. We, we just had this melting pot in what was known as quote unquote little Italy. And we all played street hockey. So, I just wanted to play. And these guys were born in 68, 67, my cousin and them, 68, 67, some 66. I was born in 75. So basically, I would follow them around. And whatever street they played on, I was there. When the street lights came on, we had to be home. Otherwise, you know what was going to happen. It's usually my mom, too, who'd be like, we told you you had to be home. So either or my auntie. So from that point, I just fell in love with the game. And 
you know, I was on the rink at Hillcrest Park before I had skates, man. I was wearing Cougar winter boots for those of you guys. If you guys on the on the podcast, <laughs> I know you guys remember Cougars. I had Cougar boots on with a red felt, and I was on the on the on the ice, literally before my dad went down to uh, went down to Young and Davenport, yeah, Young and Davenport around there where that Canadian Tire is, and bought my first pair of Orbit skates. And then we registered to play house league at St. Mike's because my cousin was there playing, and the rest is history. I knew right from then I wanted to play in the NHL. So what was weird about all that is that minor hockey for me in the then MTHL, current GTHL, the way my, my family, you know, my parents then and my sister, the way we were treated overall was great. I played Toronto Red Wings the whole time. The late Mr. Harper was awesome. The late Mr. Jack Harper and his wife Carmen owned the organization. But you guys know the Toronto Red Wings organization was always very multicultural. We had players from every background. But what was weird is the odd time we go to a tournament, there'd be the odd parent or fan that would say something ignorant, the odd knucklehead. But in the GTHL, then MTHL loop, we had no problems. But then when I got to the O, then I started to hear some fans. I remember in Kitchener specifically, I don't want to dignify certain places for this, but um, I remember it happening in Kitchener. I remember it happening in North Bay, Sault Ste. Marie. And my parents were at these games a lot of the times. So if you can imagine a parent, you know, my young sister at the time being subjected to that and, you know, family members, extended friends, buddies, whatever. It's just, it was needless. And then when I was in the American League or the IHL, it was cool. And then in the NHL, I would say, for the most part, it was cool. And there were a lot of great advocates that I had, too many to mention, you know, from Paul Maurice, Lou Lamorello, Len Sather, Jimmy Rutherford, you know, Rick Dudley, um, Commissioner Batman, Deputy Commissioner Bill Dale. There's a lot of them that have been huge advocates of mine and big supporters along the way different teammates that I've had, lifelong friends. But I will say this, some of the instances where maybe it's a certain writer that would call me by the wrong name on purpose in a certain market, which I won't dignify. And maybe they'd be like, hey, uh, Stevie, what happened there? You left your five hole open, Steve. Like, what's?" And you could tell that it was, you knew where it was coming from. Or, you know, sometimes compensation disparity or opportunity disparity or, you know, whatever. So, yeah, in seeing what's taken place it's been hard to watch you know also kind of say this what i think is a big misnomer for people is a lot of times people say back in canada like oh we don't have this problem in canada that's not true like i would be driving to ice sports scarborough malvern arena ice sports etobicoke um meadowvale twin rinks Arendale out in Mississauga, Meadowville out in, in Mississauga, just as an example. And this is summer hockey to go and skate with, you know, Cujo and these guys that were heroes of mine, right? In the NHL skate, Doug Gilmore, you know, Matt's when he was there, Ty and all those guys, you know, the whole NHL crew that would skate together in the summer. So if you could imagine me being a junior guy and then, you know, signing my first pro contract and stuff, I must have gotten pulled over back home about 20 times. Excuse me, is this your vehicle? Okay, can we see your license registration? Where are you going? Okay, here it's going. I'm going to this arena. Oh, oh, you're Weeks, the goalie. Oh, well, why don't you play for the Leafs? What? <laughs> so, so that's the kind of stuff <sighs> that, uh, and more, that kind of, uh, yeah, to your point, it, it kind of, I don't want to say it triggers that, but those are things that you certainly don't forget. And yeah, maybe they're a little bit more, I don't want to say inflamed, but a little bit more closer to the surface given what's happened. Uh, I just, Kevin, just to, you know, I've heard that story a lot from, uh, you know, from colleagues of mine who 
or African-American mm. about being pulled over for no reason. And I, and I have no idea what that feels like as a white privileged person. I, I just don't. Like, right. I just never thought of it. And, and it's just, it's, it's so upsetting. Um, you know, one thing that, I appreciate it, that. Evander Kane said, uh, Evander Kane and Akeem Ali, who joined James Duffy on mm-hmm. TSN last night. Mm-hmm. And a lot of wonderful, uh, important uh, messages and comments in that interview. But one thing Evander Kane said that hit home for me, again, hockey's been my life, as you know, was mm-hmm. that, totally. was that, you know, he, he told Logan Couture once in San Jose, you know, what do you think it would feel like if you walked into a hockey dressing room and everyone was black except you, you were the white guy. Sure. And, and, and you know, Logan, who was one of the first, uh, you know, white players to come out, which has now started yes, a lot of hockey players coming out and making Absolutely. statements, which is great to see. But that hit home for me because hockey's been my life and, and I just haven't given that enough thought. Um mm as to how it would impact, you know, um, a black player trying to make um, a career out of this and, and how to fit in. And it, it, I tell you, it really hit home, Kevin. What's interesting for me is, you know, I have a strong identity in who I am and where we're from. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time on the island. And listen, my parents couldn't afford to fly to Barbados when I was playing AAA hockey, man. I, like... I remember going at four and then I remember, you know, my parents went back from my grandma's funeral. I would have been around 15 or 16 at the time. And then, you know, I made a vow after I signed my first contract that I'd be there every year, two, three, four times a year. But our house was very rich in terms of our culture, like growing up. So, and you know, both my parents worked their tails off and I could hear them now. And I talked to them almost daily (laughs) and they always would say, hard work is the name of the game. Hard work is the name of the game. Keep your nose clean, be decent. Keep your nose clean. Be mannerly. You like, you know, all the old school values, right? And I had a strong sense of that and a strong cultural foundation that way. So when I went into Chesswood, um, my dad still struts into Chesswood and goes there to talk to parents or whatever. We felt like that was a second home. When we're at St. Mike's, I could close my eyes right now and tell you every every little corner to the chain hang in the hallway at St. Mike's to Chesswood to North Toronto Arena to you name it. So the rinks felt like a second home for us, but we had a strong sense of home at home. And at that time, as mentioned, you know, everybody was welcoming to us at that time in the MTHL atmosphere, now GTHL. So, but what was weird is it wasn't a thing until I got to junior. And I don't mean tier two junior with the buzzers with St. Mike's because I played up with them a little bit. But I mean, once I got to the OHL, it was kind of in that sense. I'm like, ooh, so it's Owen Sound. It's 21,000 people. I'm from Toronto. We had moved to Scarborough, which is a suburb of Toronto, as you guys obviously know, but for our listeners that may or not, which is a big melting pot. And then I go to Owen Sound, 21,000 people, and there was like four black, five black people in the town. So it was different, but I, even still, the team, the, the then owners, Rob Holiday, his dad, Rob, ran the team. Everybody, from a team standpoint, they were great to my parents when they drive up and they, they treated us very well. But one of the first instances I had was with a girl at school, in high school, at Wessel High School, where during our, uh, during our initiation, she got up in my rookie initiation, that is, for those of us that went to the public high school, because some went to the Catholic one the other side of the town. But um, she got up in my face and was calling me the N-word, up in my face, like in the middle of the calf. So wow. that quickly became an incident. And I literally, after the, I literally walked straight into the principal's office and told the principal, who couldn't have been 
any more empathetic, couldn't have been any more open-minded and, you know, just human one-on-one was off the charts. And, you know, I told my parents and I told the coach or, you know, our coach at the time, Coach Harrigan and our general manager, Rob Holiday, as mentioned, and they couldn't have been any more supportive. But that was kind of like my intro to that, so to speak. That was the first time that I'd seen that or really experienced that up close in that. It couldn't have been any more personal because literally she was, uh, as we were talking, she was literally spitting in my face as we were talking. That's how close the encounter was. So that was my kind of eye opener where that's concerned. But aside from that, in terms of being in different rinks and going to different arenas, you know, I had a strong sense of, you know, a two parent household and a sister and family and my teammates, for the most part, at every level, were great, and I was always very, uh, how can I say, self-assured that way, and I felt at home, and I feel at home in any arena I go to. It could be the smallest town. It could be Carp, Ontario, outside Ottawa, and I feel at home in an arena, and if there are other people that don't feel at home or that feel a little bit weird or whatever on the opposite side, that's on them, but any rink I go to, I know that they're for the most part, there are a lot of great people and good people in there. And there's the odd knucklehead, but I feel very at home. But I got to tell you, it is a challenge because there are certain times. Guys, I'll tell you this. When I played in the American League, this is the only incident I had in the HL in my two years playing in it. I don't know if you got, I'm, I'm, that's facetious, but the OJ, the OJ Simpson trial or the situation and, the tri- and then the trial was on in our locker room. Okay, And I was playing in Greensboro for the Panthers HL affiliate at the time, Carolina Monarchs. And it was myself and another black player from Detroit, Akeel Adams. And we got in the locker room and everybody's standing around the TV for the verdict. And when the verdict happened, we almost thought that we were going to have to fight 20 of our teammates. Like, that's, that's how awkward that was. That's how thick the air was. Like, guys were mad. And some guys, I mean, some guys are still great guys. I'm lifelong friends with a few of them. But some of those guys were, like, ready ready to pop off and like at us like they were mad at us it's like we never met oj simpson we don't know him we don't know you know the late nicole brown simpson we don't know any of those people they've never met al cowlings like we don't know judge ito i'm just rattling off the names but it's almost as though some of them were so upset by it that they almost held us responsible or you know just kind of misdirected their anger towards us so um yeah it's pure it's it's an interesting one it is it's an interesting one to be able to assimilate but some of the tolerance isn't always there for some people. And as I said, you find some knuckleheads for sure. And, you know, they'll make stupid comments or ill-advised comments. Or, But for the most part, you know, when you're playing with people like Rod Brindamore, the great Rod Brindamore, and since you talk about Hall of Fame, who I think should be a Hall of Famer and will be, and you're playing with people like, you know, the great Ronnie Francis or um, Henrik Lundqvist, even his first two years when we played together, Patty Eliash, you know, these guys are top quality people as much as Marty St. Louis, Brad Richards. You know, those guys are top quality people as much as they were incredible players. Mark Messier, you know, just to name a few. So those guys were classy and they were always very supportive. And as I said, all those guys are lifelong friends to this day we talk. So I'm very grateful to have had those guys. And just for the pod purpose, yesterday, inadvertently, accidentally, I looked down at my phone and I see we're actually in a store here. And I see Ron Francis. Shoot, I missed Ronnie's call. What's up? So I call him back. He's like, hey, bud, just calling to check on you, man. How are you doing with all this stuff? How are you feeling? How's the family? 
So, you know, you can't really quantify that level of class and decency and, you know, compassion, you know, goes a long yeah. way. Kevin, it, Pierre alluded to it, uh, and it's something that really interesting. With he mentioned Logan Couture, and certainly we've seen a, a lot of players uh, take to social media, and uh, I, I, it strikes me that there's a, there's often a, a theme of you know I, I'm not sure exactly how to present this, but here is how I'm feeling, and he, I want. I want to be part of the process and part of the solution, those kinds of sentiments. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what it's been like from your perspective mm. to see those players come forward and to see the numbers mm. uh, continue to rise. Uh, just before we started to tape this, I know Sidney Crosby um, had a um, had had a statement that came out on social media. That, mm-hmm. um, what's what's that like for you? How important is it? Or what, how meaningful is it? What's what's your take on all that? Oh, I can't tell you, man. It gives me goosebumps. It it almost brings me to tears because, you know, we're brothers and sisters in the game. And I don't mean brothers only from a black standpoint, but we're brothers and sisters in the game. And, you know, one of the things about this game, which I this is why I have a hard time with the knuckleheads, because they conveniently either don't remember or they want to pretend that it didn't happen. But, you know, I'm playing in the Pee Wee All Ontario's up in Timmins, Ontario at the time, you know, with the Toronto Red Wings, and we're playing in the Pee Wee Ontarios, and we're on global TV for the final, and there's so many volunteers that are at that tournament. (laughs) Forget, I mean, other parents, too, like, that are drinking coffee, that are uniting over the game, so whether you're Greek, whether you're Filipino, whether you're Russian, whether you're French-Canadian, whatever the case may be, and all the parents, grandparents, siblings playing mini sticks, you're at the snack bar, like, the game in a lot of ways, connects us. So, and there are so many different volunteers, you know, and, and different tor- tournament personnel and organize, organizers that are working together, and the game unifies us in a lot of ways. So, it's nice to know, and I'm just saying that at a grassroots level, you know, you, so it's nice to know at the NHL level, and some of the guys that I just mentioned to you previously, and, you know, other broadcasters, yourselves even reaching out to do this, Trip Tracy, John Forslund, Linda Cohn, ESPN, there's so many different people. But the fact that some of our brothers, in terms of fellow players, are now stepping out and realize the magnitude of the situation. You know, if you put me back in 2002, inside of our locker room for the Carolina Hurricanes, and we're playing against Montreal at the Bell Center, um, then Molson Center, but when that knucklehead threw the banana at me on the ice after that game, they won the game in OT, Montreal did. Everybody in that locker room, like even the PR guy, Mike Sunheim, him and I were just going back and forth yesterday. And even Sonny to, you know, the great Jimmy Rutherford, Paul Maurice, our assistant coaches, Kevin McCarthy, all those guys have my back. All of them. Every single one of them. Every person in that organization had my back. And I knew that. But that was within the locker room. I don't know. Like I've got buddies on every team and in every organization at that time. But it was a different time. So I knew that my teammates had my back. I know some of the guys on Montreal had my back, but I didn't hear from I didn't hear from them or I didn't hear from different players around the league, even by way of text, the way we've seen now. And I think that's a testament to how far we've come. And what's reassuring is a lot of people are going to help us all on the journey with how far we have ahead and how far we have to go. And it's great. And Sid, you know, I've got 
Sid is as, as perfect a player or person, I think, as he is a player. And he knows that, and I've told him that numerous times. I love Sid. Love everything about him. Love everything he stands for. Love the way he carries himself when the camera's off. A lot of people don't know a lot of the great things Sid's already done, certainly for the African-American community. And Sid won't be the one to talk about it, but I will. You know, he's donated over a 1,000 sets of equipment to an inner-city girls hockey program in Pittsburgh organization. Over a 1,000 sets. His hockey schools, his make-a-wish stuff. I mean, there's so many different things. Visits behind the scenes. You saw what he did last year with Tim Hortons with – the, uh, the hockey team from, from Africa. You guys remember that, how touching that was. Right. Yep. But so much of that was done quietly. And I know because of my you know, relationships there and knowing Sid and Pat Brisson and their trainer, Dana, who we had in Tampa, and just different people, you know, David Morehouse, their president. But it's amazing. It's amazing to see what he's already done. And it's, I, I, I'm going to bring some of that to light. <laughs> and I know that he wants to do more. And I know, given who he is, he will commit to doing more. And it's nice to see that from other players. Blake Wheeler, you know, you guys touched on some of the guys, Logan Couture, um, Shea Weber. I mean, you know, we already knew that these guys were great players. And for those of us that know them in the business and, you know, I'm friends and have a lot of great relationships with a lot of these guys. And I know you guys have relationships with them, too. So it means the world to see those guys come forward and offer their support and, you know, show their empathy and wanting to listen and wanting to help heal, be a part of that healing and, and wanting to help. Because I got to tell you guys, I, in my days, I never thought it would have been possible beyond my own immediate teammates or people that I might have grown up with, you know, guys that I played with growing up in Toronto or whatever the case may be, or a junior, my immediate, you know, hockey circle. But for the broader, to see this many guys and this many people come forward, men and women, it's, uh, it's empowering. It's, it's, very, it's very empowering to see. And I'm certainly so grateful for that. Well, listen, Kevin, I want to thank you for coming on and, uh, you know, emptying your soul, sharing your soul with us in terms of talking about things that aren't easy and, and uh, just so genuine. And, uh, and it's impactful, you know, to hear where you're coming from on this. And one of my favorite things that I'm that I like to say these days as, as these historical events are happening in front of our eyes is that I'm, I'm learning as a white privileged person, there's just so much to learn. And yeah. uh, I, learned, you know I, I learned again from listening to you. I appreciate that, uh, man. Go ahead. Go ahead, Scotty. Yeah. Please I, take Ke- your time. Kevin, I, I don't want to let you, uh, I don't want to let you off the hook just yet because no, I'm, I, no I, I'm curious. I'm, I'm curious sure. about, you know, sort of, we, we, we think about the future and, sure. you know, I was looking at the number of, you know, I think there are four black NHL assistant or associate or video or goaltending coaches which is a very small number um i know at the division one level there i think there are two black uh members of coaching staffs at the division one level nhl executive teams are you know it's been a hard it's it's a hard business to crack into beyond the player level Mm -hmm. and i wonder you know what what's in the future for you? I mean, what do, is there is there a role for you beyond your job as a as a broadcaster and commentator? I mean, do you do you aspire to something that's that's different within the game of hockey? I'm open to it. I'll start with I love media. I hyper consume 
good quality media and quality content. Listen, my parents, <laughs> for, for you guys would understand, but to this day, my parents, they think CP24 back home in Toronto is, the, is, is everything. Okay, so they love watching news. Uh, back in the day, it was City TV, City Pulse, and then CBC News, and then CTV News. Like they just, they, that's their way of being informed, right? And reading papers and magazines. So I actually love, I really love this craft. It's been 11 years for me. And Scotty, I, I've told you, Pierre, I don't know if I've said this to you before, but I'm on TV almost 200 days a year. Just shy of 200 days, in and around 200 days. And a lot of those are, you know, six, seven, eight hour days as far as television is concerned. So I'm on more than any hockey analyst. Let's put it that way. And more than most sports analysts. So I love the work. I love the craft. Uh, I want to continue expanding in media. But I'm also open to ultimately running a team one day. And you know, I've had that discussion with Bill Daly, Deputy Commission, who's been super supportive. And I told you guys off the top, both him and Gary have been longtime supporters of mine and, and big advocates of mine. But it, it also, for me, helps to have people like the great Lou Lamorello, who I've shared that with, and Dave Morehouse, I mentioned, uh, Glenn Sather. We were just we were at our we were at him and his wife's house in Banff during our Christmas break, visiting the other side of the family, Megan's side of the family out in Calgary, and we spent some time with Glenn and Anne, his lovely wife, and their family spoke to him about it. So I definitely have that aspiration. I'd love to be a team president one day. I'd love to run a team. You know, as mentioned, I played for those great general managers, the late, great Bill Torrey, you know, the late, great Brian Murray played with a lot of great players and different role players. And I just believe that there's, there's a lot that I've learned from being around them and from, you know, you kind of combine that through experience, but also from having relationships at every level, from grassroots, OMHA, NOHA, um, you know, whatever, to here in the States, USHL, NAHL, Europe, all the way up to the NHL level. And I really believe that you know, the NHL level is the top of the mountain, guys, as you guys know that. You guys have been on the beat for years doing a great job. But you guys also know what you guys do. There's, you know, there's only 730 players in the world at the NHL level, so... The pyramid, the top of the pyramid or the apex is one thing, but it's from there down to me. That's what's most important. And it's how you treat people, how you interact with people, uh, putting together a team of like-minded people that want to, number one, be great people. And number two, want to achieve great things together. So, you know, I've covered what it's been at the last 10 Stanley Cup final in this role now and all the outdoor events, all the all-star games. So, yeah. Uh, and played on a team that went to a cup final in 02. So absolutely, I would love to, you know, the way I became the first black broadcaster in NHL history in 91 years, I'd love to become the first uh, the first black team president and, and run and operate a team. Uh, I'd love to be able to do that. It's a, it's, a, it's a big goal that I have and one that I'd love to achieve. And I have a lot of buddies doing it now, especially Shani, as you guys know. And you guys know that Ronnie is running uh, Seattle. So these guys are friends. And they're former teammates. And I know that they're great at their craft. Look at what Rod Brindamore is doing with Carolina and how he's running that team. And gotten in the Eastern Conference final back in the playoffs this year. So, yeah, all that to say it's kind of a long-winded answer because I like to be detailed. But I would love to run a team someday. And here's the thing. You know, I'll actually kind of counter this back to Brunner. And, Pierre, you know this too. 
the wider the net that you cast, the more of the best of the best people you're going to get. And look at the Philadelphia Flyers. When you think of two of the best players in the history of their franchise, you know they had great players. But not all of them come from Philadelphia or from Southern Jersey. And your guy, you know, Claude Giroux, has scored over 800 points and is going to go down as one of the best flyers in history. Hearst, Ontario. Hearst, Ontario. <laughs> and, and, he's, and, he's not from, and he's not from anywhere near to Philly, right? Nor are you. No, as an example. no, and he couldn't right? even great... he couldn't even get noticed by the OHL. He had to go as a walk on to the Quebec League. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Right. So, so that's an yeah. example. And same thing, you know, the great Bobby Clark, Flynn Flynn. I mean, you know, we can go Carter Hart now. He's Carter Hart's from Red Deer. You know, so you can kind of the Big E is you know was born in London, Ontario, and then they moved to Toronto. So that's just an example of just cat just when you cast that net, spread the widest net possible to expand your pool of who the best of the best look like. And then you make your selection from the best of the best. But uh, I would like to be on the right side of that for Good. for all those reasons that I mentioned. So I would love to do it. Well, at some point. I mean, the, the, just imagine yeah. the impact it would have if you did run a team one day in terms of telling other people walking in your shoes that it's possible. Uh, I mean, that's, that, yeah, that, and, thank and, you. you know, and, and I feel feel that way about a lot of things i mean uh, scotty knows this but uh, you know about you know giving women the opportunity uh, nhl Absolutely. wise and, and seattle is really at the forefront right now that's and, right and they're hiring and um you know hiring cam cammy granado but it goes beyond that and uh, yeah i mean listen it's i don't want to be naive but it, it feels like we're on the precipice of, of perhaps a real page turning here nhl wise i certainly hope that's the case i do too let yeah. me piggyback that unless you guys have to leave because I don't. Let me piggyback that because here's something that I think is really cool. You look at Vegas, you look at Vegas, okay? And you guys know this too because a lot of people specifically back home were ragging on Vegas. Oh, why don't we get another franchise in Canada? How are they going to go to Vegas? It's never going to work. Now, for those of you like you two that have been in the business as long as you guys have, you've been as successful as you have, you guys know, you've been to NHL awards. You see the way the crowds turn out. You know that it's always a first-class event. And, you know, you guys have been around long enough to talk to some of us that played in the old IHL and you know guys that played for the Thunder or that played against them or for the ECHL Wranglers or whatever. So they've had a long history with hockey. But in came their ownership group led by Bill Foley. And I'm telling you, and you guys know this, from the uniforms to the gear to the arena to the fan experience to their corporate partners to being there for the first responders during the tragedy in Vegas, to the practice facility, to now buying an HL team, to the HL team arena, to another arena in Henderson. Like they've, that's an example of what happens when you're open-minded, right? And I think our league was very open-minded. The Board of Governors were very open-minded. And don't get me wrong, Vegas had to state their case. But nonetheless, if you look at what Bill Foley and George McPhee and that group have done, and let's give Gerard Gallant a lot of credit. I know he's not there anymore. Um, and Kelly McCrimmon, of course. Those guys have done an awesome job out there. That whole team, the whole organization. And they've done something that's transformative and it's helped our sport. Obviously, it's helped their city and their area, but it's helped our sport. And they did something that was, you know, unprecedented. And the same thing last year for the St. Louis Blues. We knew St. Louis is always a great sports town and a great hockey town. But, you know, how about Chief? Uh, give Doug Armstrong credit. Give the ownership credit. They didn't panic when they were dead last in January. 
And Chief comes aboard, they, they're open-minded. Remember, they weren't that open-minded to Jordan Bennington. And I know this from talking to Binner three years ago at a barbecue in the back of P.K. Subban's parents' house in Toronto. Weeksy, I just need a shot. Weeksy, I need a shot. Binner, I know. Weeksy, I need a shot. Binner, I know. You're going to get it. Don't worry. You're going to get it. And as you know, it's been documented. He told that to uh, Chief, to Craig Berube. And, you know, you have a First Nations coach that, along with his players and along with their team and along with all the different people there, they make history by winning the first Stanley Cup in 50 years So in their franchise. So that's what I mean about the infinite possibilities, like a Claude Giroux or like Chief from Callahoo. Or, you know, Pierre, yourself being on the beat and, and doing all the great things you've been doing, you're from hers too. Like, that's not a common path, right? And, Scotty, you were one of the first guys to move down here, right? You were one of the first guys to move to the States, even being from back home. And you're like, hey, man, I'm, I'm, I'm going for it. So there's something to be said for that. I'm a big believer in that. Yeah, good stuff. Kevin, as Pierre said, uh, thank you so much for taking the time My pleasure. And, and sharing. Oh, it's been it's terrific. to. It's always great to catch up with you. But this, especially in these days, um, it's been terrific to have you on. And uh, I hope we'll see you at a safe distance in a rink later this summer, my friend. So thank uh, you for thanks for hanging out with us. Listen, guys, I can't thank you guys enough, honestly, because it's a conversation that not everybody's comfortable in having. And I know that you guys... You know, I've known you guys a long time. You guys have seen either both my parents or see my dad at Stanley Cups or All-Stars yep. or whatever different events. And uh, so I thank you guys, man. I, I really do. I know you guys are fellow parents and really appreciate you guys taking the time and having the empathy and compassion. And thanks to Punchy um, for putting it all together, too. So thanks for having me, guys. Piano uh, periods. I, I, I got to tell you, I was a little bit nervous today. You know, it's it's a hard it's a hard time and it's. It's a hard topic. You alluded to it, you know, as as a white man of privilege, it's you know, it's it's sometimes hard to know how to step forward with this. And it's uh, just thankful for Kevin for, you know, sharing his experiences and and and, and making it uh, and making it easy. He's always great to talk to. But uh, I, I thought that was really meaningful. And it uh, I don't know how you feel, but I, I it's it is hard to know which is the right step for which is the right step to take. Yeah. I, I read something today that hit home for me as well, Scotty. Uh, it was Eric Kareen and Blake Murphy on our NBA side writing and quoting a gentleman who said, you know, it's not good enough to be a non-racist. You have to be an anti-racist. And, yeah, and, I read the same thing. And, and yeah. hit, hit home because I think forever I... And part of it was, you know, maybe not being comfortable in what I should be saying when I felt like I, I didn't, because I didn't live it, you know, what, what am I supposed to say? You know, I took comfort in the fact that I knew I wasn't a racist, but but the sidelines aren't good enough anymore. And uh, I think that's a, you know, Jonathan Tay's had a really thoughtful Instagram post this week and two things, you know, he talked about white people talking to white people about this. That's true. I mean, and that's yeah. an important part of this conversation right now is getting out of our comfort zone and, and being part of social change. And and it shouldn't just be up to uh, to black people to stand up for justice. It should be all people. It's it's humanity. And um, and again, more, you know, the impact I can have that you can have is more in our hockey world, of course. But there's a lot to work to be done there. And, uh, 
uh, it's just beginning, really. And, and, and listen, I, you know, I think the NHL hiring Kim Davis was very important, no question about it. But I think there's still a lot more to be done. And and you know, one of the things that concerns me from a hockey perspective when we talk about diversity and and uh, is that I I'm I'm fearing where the game is actually headed in terms of the people that can actually access it. The the costs have become exorbitant through the roof just just in the 10 years alone in the last 10 years alone for AAA players and elite players to access the kind of programs and 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 skill work um you know it's 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 not for everyone I like to say hockey's for everyone yeah. but it isn't when you look at the socioeconomic uh patterns in terms of elite hockey and i that's a huge area of focus for me when i think about who can play this game and, and who's going to have access to it. And, you know, and I think that's an area that we have to keep hitting on as well as time goes on here is, is are we losing out on kids being able to play this game purely from an economic perspective? And I think that's important to, to, to yeah. stay on. Well, it is. And you're absolutely right. I mean, we've talked about this uh, during the pause. I mean, what's the game going to look like given the, the horrific economic impact of, of the COVID-19 virus. And um, you're right. It, it, it And it's going to take a concerted effort. I was talking to a team executive the other day about this very topic and this, this idea that teams, they have to, you, you really have to commit to being supportive and being connected to, uh, you know whether it's low income or visible minority communities in whatever city you're talking about but and and that relationship can't just be about you know learn to play sessions a couple times a year or it it has to be it has to be a, a lifelong thing it has to be that support has to be there for players who are 5 and 6 and 8 or 9 and 15 and 16 that it has to go all the way through because the more people, players who have that kind of access to, like you say, skills and, and are successful, they become magnets for other kids who want to play. It's, it's you know, to, to, to see players who are like them, who look like them, whether it's black or Hispanic or male or female, the more you see other people like you doing it, that's why you want to do it. And, and it can't be done, as you point out, in a vacuum. So, mm-hmm. um, do you want to talk a little hockey here at the end? I mean, you've been, you know, again, listen, the, the, the process of uh, the return to play committee, trying to figure out what the format will look like when the NHL gets back in, uh, well, it'll probably be late July at the earliest, probably into August before we actually see games. But, uh, and you've been writing about what happens to the seven teams that aren't included. What they, you know, where, is there something you want to leave us with that is, that, that is sort of on the hockey side of things? Yeah. I felt the need to focus in on the forgotten seven, as I like to call them now, because, uh, you know, these think about what life is like for these seven teams. They're not, they're going to go nine and a half months potentially without playing a game. If hockey's not back till December or January, it's, 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 I can't say it's unprecedented because of course the old four or five season wasn't played at all. So, but the point I made in that story this week is that at least that affected every team in the league in an equal manner. Right. Exactly. In the, in this particular case, 24 teams are going to get to play some hockey 
some longer than others, but still some meaningful hockey if this tournament is, is pulled off. I should keep adding that caveat. Um, whereas the seven teams won't and, and the challenges ahead for those seven teams. And part of what I've found out over the past week is that some of those teams are starting to wonder about whether it makes it would make sense to hold like a, a mini camp training camp of sorts in the middle of all this not just the actual camp that will come eventually you know in december or january but but a camp you know whether it's the summer or the fall just to just to get all their players you know back in tune and um and, and we'll see if they're able to do that obviously you'll need the nhlpa to sign off on it and uh you'll need the league to sign off on it i don't think it'll be an issue with the nhl from what i understand but We'll see how the PA feels about it. It may be that the players feel that that kind of thing should be voluntary and not mandatory, and we'll see where it goes from there. But that's the kind of thing you got to think of when you're running those seven teams, right? That that you're at a disadvantage right now from the rest of the league. Um, I mean, you're already at a disadvantage in that some of these teams are rebuilding and have and, and need to do a lot of things to get better, starting with the draft. But in the meantime... Your your current NHL players are at a disadvantage that they don't get to play again this season. So it, it'll uh, you know those are things. Let's not forget those seven teams. I guess is what what I would say. Yeah, no, I think it was interesting. I did a uh, an online chat uh, yesterday, and uh, uh, there were a number of questions about well, what, you know, what happens to those teams, and how do you you know how do you how do you facilitate development and and not sort of let them hang out there for what would be again given the dynamics it would be unprecedented because they would be basically left behind for you know months in a way that uh, lots of other teams won't be and i think it's i think it's an excellent again it it, it just is a reminder that uh, how much outside the box thinking needs to be done on so many levels um if this game is going to come back and and be as healthy as it you know as it possibly can given these terrible circumstances so anyway good stuff by you my friend i hope we have better news and better things to talk about next week when we reconvene um feels like a long uphill road that we travel and uh we just hope people can stay safe and 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 get through it so yes yeah but Yes. Uh, before we go, though, let's uh, let's give a shout out to some of our colleagues uh, in other pod areas of the athletic. Uh, Stanley Cup champion Ben Lovejoy joins the penultimate podcast with Josh Yoey, Rob Rossi, and Sean Gentili at the Athletic. Uh, former Canuck Dan Cloutier joins the Van Cast on Monday with Jeff Patterson and Thomas Drance uh, this week at the Athletic, and Cam Atkinson of the Columbus Blue Jackets joins Aaron Portsline and Allison Lucan on Front and Nationwide at The Athletic this week. And you should always check out our comments section for each podcast episode at The Athletic app. And don't forget to rate and subscribe to Two Man Advantage on Apple. And if you click on the show URL, theathletic.com slash twomanadvantage, you'll get 40% off your subscription. All right, my friend. Let's see where we're at a week from today. But uh, as always, great work by you and always great to catch up. So stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do it again next week. All right. Sounds good, my friend.